Obi Igbuna, welcome to Tell a Friend. Thank you. Now, firstly, I wanted to ask you how you've been coping during this turbulent time. Um, you know, uh, struggle represents um, the ability to continue to wage resistance regardless of the degree of turbulence. So we're fine. Now, could you begin by talking to my audience a bit about you and some of the projects that you've been involved with? Ah, um, well, I'm Obi Egbuna Jr., of course, um, the son of Obi Egbuna Sr., one of the founders of the Black Panther Party in London and one of the key voices of the Black Power Movement in London in the 1960s. Me, myself, um, I'm an organizer, um, political organizer, with a Pan-African thrust and focus for the last 30 years. Um, by skill and trade, I'm a journalist. Um, the, I have the honor of being the first U.S. correspondent in Zimbabwe, the national newspaper in the country's 40-year history. I'm the external relations officer to the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association, um, which is to solidify the relationship between Cuba and Zimbabwe. Um, the most significant aspect of that relationship is between 1986 and 1996. 3,000 Zimbabwean teachers went to Cuba for training. And that's one of the key reasons that Zimbabwe has a 97% literacy rate today. So I'm the first external relations officer in the history of that organization. I've been involved with it for 14 years. I'm also a children's playwright. I'm a co-founder of the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company. It's been in existence for nine years. And I've written 24 plays in a nine-year period. And um, I'm the supervisor to the Mass Emphasis Positive Action and Creativity Youth Brigade. So, and I've been an African history teacher targeting young people from kindergarten to sen their senior year in high school for the last 30 years. So I'm an organizer, but in terms of skills that we bring to struggle, I'm a journalist, I'm a teacher, I'm a children's playwright. So I hope that gives you enough. <laughs> no, thank you for that. And I wanted to begin our discussion today talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. In the past few months, we've seen the resurgence of that movement and we've seen mm. it gain such popularity around the world. And mm. I wanted to know what observations have you made regarding the surge in popularity around this cause? Well, um, I have to give you an answer from the prism and narrative of a 30-year organizer. I live in Washington, D.C., which is the surveillance capital of the world. So um, I see more police on a daily basis than the world sees in a lifetime. When I walk out of my door, I see park police with unlimited jurisdiction. I see the FBI up close. I see the CIA up close. I see the Pentagon up close. I see the Metropolitan Police Department up close. In DC, we have housing and authority police. We even have library police, Capitol Hill police. So we understand that um, we're not just dealing with police terrorism from a political framework. We're not just dealing with it from a legal framework. We're dealing with it from a cultural framework because it is the bedrock of U.S. imperialism. So, um, and I say that because when we use the word imperialism, we have a Pan-Africanist focus where we say our goal is to stop imperialism from policing the world. So don't police us in D.C., don't police us in Baltimore, don't police us in Minnesota, 
Don't police us in Grenada. Don't police us in Cuba. Don't police us in Venezuela. Don't police us in Mother Africa. And we're not just talking about the fascist aspect of the policing. We're talking about the diplomatic aspect of the policing. Um, in his first inauguration statement, former U.S. President Barack Obama said the might of our military must be matched by the strength of our diplomacy, which means if they cannot invade a country, if they cannot assassinate a leader, if they cannot rig, they'll rig an election, or they'll impose sanctions where they can impose their will, hoping to crush the patriotic spirit of the people. So the blockade on Cuba is an extension of that policing. The sanctions on Zimbabwe is an extension of that policing. So um, for us, we're going from a narrative rooted in victimization to a narrative rooted in um, resistance. So fighting um, the struggle against police terrorism inside U.S. borders is inextricably linked to the struggle against U.S. foreign policy and U.S. Africa policy. In the 1990s, when we were in the streets in our early 20s, in Africa, what was going on? Mobutu, the godfather of military neocolonialism, was shown the door in the Congo. The two CIA milita um, military mercenary outlets, Renamo in Mozambique and UNITA in Angola, resistance intensified against them. Babanga and Anabacha were shown the door in Nigeria, Doan, Liberia, Traore in Mali. So our fight is on a cultural front as well as a political front. We're not the least bit concerned about the lover's quarrel between the Democrats and Republicans. Now, do you believe that the context of the global pandemic that's happened influence the popularity for the cause? Well, I think that um, if you're talking about the corona pandemic, you have to look at, I think anything health related, anything dealing with police terrorism has to be looked at in the context of a undeniable dynamic um, where we're talking about poverty. Those who talk about justice, justice is an appetizer. We want power, we want self-determination. They can keep uh, their trinkets to wet our beak a little. We don't want that. But all of this is going on at a moment in history where they are 2,091 billionaires, according to Forbes magazine, many aspiring capitalist Bible. And, but at the same time, Brian, there's 784 million people on the planet living on $1.90 a day or less. 400 million of them live on the African continent. Of the 25 poorest nations in the world, 22 are in Mother Africa, and the other two, the other three are the Solomon Islands, Afghanistan, and Haiti. And if you walk through the streets of Haiti or walk through the streets of the Solomon Islands, you'll think you were in Nigeria, you think you were in Burkina Faso, you think you were in Mali, you think you were in Zimbabwe, you think you were in Namibia. So that's the fight, that, that's our fight. So in relationship to the pandemic, um, you also have to take into consideration that the World Health Organization informed the world 10 years ago that between 2010 and 2038, they were anticipating 57 million deaths from non-communicable diseases, which have surpassed HIV, AIDS, cholera, and malaria as the number one killer of the human being. So we're talking heart attacks, strokes, diabetes. So for African people and at home and abroad, the hospital is an extension of the cemetery. And our people in the United States, but I'm sure it's like this all over the world, we would rather face the Pentagon, the Air Force, the Marines, and all the police forces together with plastic cutlery 
then go to the hospital. That's the distrust we have for the healthcare system in the United States. And I'm sure that that sentiment is a microcosm of how African people feel all over the world. Now, in these few, uh, past few months when we've been talking either about the health crisis or when we've been talking about the anti-racist campaigning that's been going on, mm. I noticed that there was a lack of African voices in the news we were hearing. Why mm. do you think we don't hear the voice of Africans? Well, first of all, it's the job of the enemy. They learned in the 1960s, how are they going to give us their outlets to use as ammunition? So if you're expecting to see someone like Malcolm X on CNN, sorry to disappoint you. If you're expecting to see someone like Dr. King or Kwame Ture on Face the Nation, sorry to disappoint you. Every now and then, we're able to penetrate some of these corporate media outlets. But this is a propaganda war. Their weapons are their weapons, our weapons are our weapons, and we still will get the truth out. I feel so confident about this because I listen to them speak. A few years ago, I had the opportunity in my capacity as the U.S. correspondent to Zimbabwe's national newspaper, I was assigned to go to the U.S. Institute of Peace. For your listeners who may not be familiar with that organization, it is the most powerful and influential think tank in Washington. It gives the State Department direction on policy formulation and some of the more popular think tanks. The Africa expert from Chatham House in your neck of the woods, Dr. Alex Vines, was coming there to discuss Zimbabwe. And the, the, in the opening remarks, um, Ambassador Johnny Carson, who was Clinton's ambassador to Zimbabwe, and during Obama's administration, he was the first um, Assistant Secretary to African Affairs. He said that Zimbabwe is winning the propaganda war against them with their press and ragtag journalists like myself. He didn't mention my name, but he was talking about those who are on social media and represent grassroots outlets. So it let us know that to use a biblical analogy, David can beat Goliath. So what you're doing right now, we can beat CNN, we can beat C-SPAN, we can beat um, Al Jazeera when they decide to side with imperialism. We don't worry about that. So we're not worried about them giving coverage to us. As a matter of fact, we're old school organizers, so to speak. We want impact, not visibility. We, visibility is like a cherry on a Sunday. It's a bonus, but it doesn't define our impact. It doesn't define progress for us. Matter of fact, the less they see, the better off we are, because the annals of our illustrious history of struggle show us that the best weapon we have is the element of surprise. Now, on that discussion about grassroots media and about visibility of some of these causes, with the visibility of Black Lives Matter and the fact that you've got corporations now using the hashtag and endorsing it, mm -hmm. do you believe that Black Lives Matter is too sanitized a movement? Um, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know anything about it. I've never been a part of it. We don't like to comment on um, things that we're not a part of. But like I said, we look at this from the perspective of the 90s generation and those of us who continue to struggle. I will say this much, George Soros and the Open Society Initiative are the enemies of the African liberation struggle. Someone who through the Open Society Initiative is financing 350 of the 400 civil society groups in Zimbabwe to bring about regime change because Zimbabwe reclaimed our precious land for its indigenous people. That's an enemy of our people. Someone who um, through 
one of his right hands, a man named Mr. Moses Nyan, who was the editor of the right-wing magazine Foreign Policy, which is now owned by the Washington Post. And he's on the board of George Soros Open Society Initiative. And he's the main one trying to bring about the overthrow of the revolutionary government of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. And Venezuela is so important in the context of Western hemispheric politics because they're saying that the 191 million Africans that live in North America, South America, the Central America, the Caribbean, all the way to Canada should come together as one political force, should come together as one cultural force. So if he's for bringing about regime, attempting to bring about regime change in Venezuela, trying to bring about regime change in Zimbabwe, then him pretending to be sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, um, that concerns us very much. But for us, we say that um, what determines the quality of life you have is whether you're liberated or oppressed. If you're liberated, what are you doing to remain liberated? If you're oppressed, what are you doing to become liberated? So, and like we said, the quality of life is determined by the power that you have. So, we, and we understand that many of the young people out there, they're not necessarily running behind the banner, but it's just that it's something that people gravitate to. But the core issues is what we're more focused on. How are we dealing with homeland security, what we used to call the military industrial intelligence police complex. And like we said, we're looking to merge what we've done our whole lives merge the struggle against police terrorism inside US borders against the struggle against US imperialism's military repression and violence, be it in the form of diplomacy, be it in the form of military aggression. That's what we're struggling for. So we're gonna keep doing the work we're doing and we wish everyone else the best of luck in what they're doing. And ultimately the masses will decide what's in their best interest. And since we have blind confidence in them, we don't have to try to sway them. All we have to do is keep working, whether we're visible or not. Now, in the fight against imperialism and in the fight for black liberation, what mm -hmm. role do you see white people or non-black people playing in the struggle? <laughs> um, solidarity is solidarity. Um, Akme Sekoutoure said Fidel Castro, a Caucasian man, is more of a brother to him than Mobutu Seseko, an African. So, um, and the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, many years before that, said, Africa for the Africans, Ireland for the Irish. So whenever solidarity is genuine, we'll take it. But we know that our resistance must be self-determined. Now, if you're talking about um, now those who do everything they can beyond the call of duty to appease liberals, white liberals in particular, that's their problem. In the United States, there are some who won't even tie their shoes unless Bill Clinton approves or Hillary Clinton approves or Jimmy Carter approves or Bernie Sanders approves. But we know that as struggle goes on, our expression and our action will be more autonomous. In the UK, you have the same problem. In Australia, we have the same problem. But when we are organized, we can deal with any of these people from a position of strength. So they don't have to try to dot our I's and cross our T's. But those who look for validation from those outside to our struggle, we have to remind them the validation is for parking. Now, as you alluded to at the beginning of this interview, often mm -hmm. social issues are framed around the context of the right and the left, mm -hmm. around Republicans and Democrats, the Conservative mm -hmm. and the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. But something that um, I think we would both know as historians 
is that the left has also been very complicit when it comes to issues of imperialism and issues of racism. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we hear criti uh, criticisms towards the right wing. Why do you think we lack this same criticism to the left? Um, it might be because of certain allegiances that people have. Let's use Zimbabwe for an example. Let's look at the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act of 2001, which was a vindictive um, response to the historic land reclamation program there. Joe Biden was a co-sponsor. Hillary Rodham Clinton was a co-sponsor. Bernie Sanders as a congressman was a, he voted in favor of it. So the criteria is don't look at how people engage you when you're vulnerable and you're suffering. Look at how they deal with you when you have the threat of having real power. And if they're threatened by you having power, if they're threatened by you being the master of your own destiny, as the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey taught us, then that tells you how they truly perceive you and how they perceive other people who have power. So the threat of power by the oppressed is always going to threaten them. And as a matter of fact, um, it's interesting that the more nationalist our expression gets, nationalism is the Achilles heel of the white liberal. It was Roy Jenkins, the labor secretary, who banned Kwame Ture from Britain, correct? The labor, the labor party gave the black power movement in Britain hell and continue to do so whenever they see the potential. And one of the best examples of that now is anytime we bring up Zionism which is very key for liberals. But um, at the same time, we look at how people deal with the situation. We b borrow from our Palestinian sisters and brothers. I don't think they have any debates over whether the Labor Party or Likud Party is more oppressive. They're just trying to liberate Palestine from the Zionists. And that's the approach that we should take. So, um, but if just because we've strategically penetrated different outlets, it's that. I mean, and at different points, Du Bois in 1947 wanted to take the United States before the United Nations. Eleanor Roosevelt, who was on the board of directors of the NAACP, did everything to stop him, everything to stop him. And now she's on the board of his organization and she's trying to stop him at the United Nations. So we recognize that the more militant and clearly defined our movement is both liberals and conservatives as they are labeled. And I'm, every now and then, I don't even like to say the left or right because I know I'm talking more about anatomy because I don't consider the Democrats the left. I don't consider the Labor Party the left at all. The only thing they have left is the, are their left limbs. But when it comes to African people, they're gonna be just as ruthless and just as oppressive and history has proved that and will continue to do so. When Reagan was a Democrat, he destroyed the Black Panther Party. He was the main spy in Hollywood during the McCarthy era. When he was a Republican president, he bombed Libya, he invaded Grenada, and, he, and whatnot. So after a while, once we have the political education that we need, and once we engage in the political activity that heightens up our maturity and heightens our understanding, we'll see through all the smoke. Now, I wanted to shift our discussion to talking about your legendary father, who was Obi Igbuna Sr. He was mm. a Nigerian playwright and uh, one of the founders of the British Black Panther movement. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, what was it like for you growing up as the son of Obi Igbuna, this iconic activist? The interesting thing is my mother uh, pushed me harder politically than my father ever did. He taught me, um, most importantly, that, um, that 
if there's a thinner line than the line between love and hate, it's the one between imposition and exposure. So he wanted to expose me to as much as he could, but he didn't want to force anything on me. But um, I grew up in an incrumist household for sure. So anytime we look at uh, anything dealing with our struggle, you know, we look at Nkrumah. Matter of fact, um, it was a it was the same Lyndon Johnson who signed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Bill in 64 and 65 who engineered the overthrow of Nkrumah in Ghana, our ultimate hero. So, um, so yeah, so um, I, I learned that our cultural and political expression must be synonymous. I learned that organizing is not an option, but an obligation. I learned that um, the human resource is the most valuable resource that we have. And history obligates all of us to struggle, regardless of our political bloodline. So uh, some people may not be fortunate to have a bloodline that I have, Mal but, um, or Malcolm X had, or um, others who um, in the torch was passed to them through their families. But we can have some from the most challenging circumstances that can come to be the most disciplined and dedicated fighters that our struggle have produced. So I was taught to respect them all, regardless of the ranks they come from. Some may come from the church, some may come from academia, some may come from prison, some may come from the workers, some may, be, some may come from the women's movement, wherever they come from, as long as they are an asset to the struggle and not a liability to the struggle. So those are just some of the things that I was taught from as young as I can remember. Now, growing up, obviously, as a son of um, Obi Aguna Sr., you must have been exposed to a lot of radical thinkers uh, who were comrades uh, with your father. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to me about some of the people who influenced your own political ideologies when you were growing up? Uh, um, I, I decided that struggle was going to be my life in 19 turning 20. So I had the opportunity to work with Kwame Ture the last eight years of his life. I had the opportunity to work, I still work with um, the man who shouted black power with him on June 16th, 1966 in Greenwood, Mississippi, 10 years before the Soweto uprising. Uh, Mukasa Dada, known in the history books as Willie Ricks. Um, my sit down with former uh, Zimbabwean president and Pan-African liberation icon, Robert Mugabe, that influenced me. Um, diplomats I've engaged that are part of the Cuban revolution and Cuban government. Um, I'm heavily influenced by the Eritrean liberation struggle. That struggle there taught me, um, reinforced to me why we must respect our women. 33% of the guerrilla fighters were women. That's the highest level of women's participation in the guerrilla struggle in the history. Um, we have a lot of influences out of the church. We have a lot of influences out of the um, the art move um, through the, in the artistic circles. We have a lot of influence in journalistic circles. So um, I have a lot of living influences and a lot of historical influences. But um, for sure, um, the ones I mentioned, and um, in terms of women, of course, because um, we know that women. Um, I've had a chance to be involved with some of the women in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who have inspired me a lot that are still struggling today. Women like Dory Ladner, women like um, Annie Pearl Avery, um, women like Dr. Lucy Noble Perez, who is one of our partners in this Get Out of Cuba Way movement to push for Cuban medical personnel to come to the United States. So the influences are blended. Um, I'm, in, I'm inspired by some of my contemporaries. I'm inspired by some of the children I work with. And I'm inspired by some of the history makers who I've had the privilege of rubbing shoulders with and all of it on the front line of struggle. All of it.
Now, when you look back at your father's political ideology, I mean, I've got my copy here of Destroy This Temple. And huh? I always think uh, it always astonishes me that not enough people actually read or know about the book. But mm -hmm. do you think that his political philosophies from back in the 60s and 70s are still relevant to the context? More, more, more relevant than ever before because we're struggling around the same thing. What makes the Black Power movement um, different in the, in the UK than the one um, in the States is um, it moved towards Pan-Africanism much faster. You have to look at the climate. First of all, as this is the 75th anniversary of the Fifth Pan-African Congress, what they was doing was um, only 23, 24 years after that. But at the same time he was there doing that, a young Maurice Bishop was the former prime minister of Grenada, a great revolutionary figure. He was a Gray's Inn studying law. Tony Martin, the historian on the Garvey movement, an active player in the Garvey movement, he was studying there. Fellow Kuti was there studying music. Walter Rodney was there pursuing his academic studies. Uh, um, an older CLR James was an influential figure in the circles of Caribbean-born Africans. So. Um, being uh, having a chance to soak in that atmosphere every day um, definitely helped. And then, of course, going from dealing with the quest for black power in Britain to condemning the Igbo Biafran um, war, where one million of our people were lost. And um, he wrote The Murder of Nigeria right after that book, a pamphlet by Panaf Books. And um, he got a chance to go to Guinea and see Osage for um, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah during his exile years. And then from there, um, Nkrumah does the two pamphlets, The Spectre of Black Power and Message to the Black People of Britain at the request of my father and Michael X. So the fact that um, he um, definitely, so those things are relevant today. You have um, a dynamic now, for example, how, um, and when we say Pan-Africanism, we want to be clear. We're talking about Pan-Africanism on a revolutionary track. Because when you deal with Africans everywhere, everything we do is Pan-African in nature. When George Foreman and Ali went to the Congo to fight for the war criminal and neo-colonialist embarrassment of Mobutu, that was Pan-African in nature, but it was neo-colonialist. These opportunist neo-colonialist leaders in Africa talking about George Floyd, that looks Pan-African on the surface, but it is neo-colonialist. If they want to strike a blow to imperialism, don't talk about George Floyd. Get the U.S. Africa Military Command installations off the African continent. Tell the United States Agency for International Development you'd rather starve than take another crumb from them as you compromise future generations who are yet to be born. So a lot of so because of that foundation that we have, we can tell when something is a masquerade and we can tell when something is authentic. That's what that's some of the most important lessons. And for example, you see now in the US um, corporate media trying to bully a football player named Deshaun Jackson because he mentioned something about Hitler. And we're Africans. We don't start German a conversation about Germany talking about Hitler, we take it back to Otto von Bismarck in 1885 in the Berlin Conference where you slice Mother Africa up like a pizza. And if Israel wants to talk to us, talk about your support of German colonialism in Namibia. 
Talk about your support for British and Rhodesian colonialism in Zambia and Zimbabwe. Talk about your support for the apartheid regime in South Africa. Talk about the fact that you refuse to acknowledge the self-determination of Algeria and Tunisia after they won their independence from French colonialism. Talk about your role in training the fascist police in the United States now, if you want to talk to us. Don't try to garner our sympathy. And if you want someone to apologize for Hitler, it shouldn't be Deshaun Jackson. It should be Prescott Bush, the grandfather, the great grandfather of George Bush, the former president, the last one. But, the you know, so he was the one who breathed Hitler into existence. So don't be trying to bully us and be trying to manipulate us. So this is why I'm saying the narrative is very important. So we learned that. And as a matter of fact, as we're dealing with the Cuba question, which we'll get to, is it an interesting of the handful of countries that still support this outdated racist white supremacist blockade on Cuba, Israel is one of the ones who has consistently done it from the outset. So it appears that anywhere Africans have progress, Africans have justice, Africans have self-determination, Israel is going to try to stop us from having it. Now here we talk about European imperialism. We also spoke about American imperialism, but a new phenomenon that we've been seeing in the past few years is Chinese imperialism on the continent of Africa. And I was mm -hmm. wondering, are you as critical of the Chinese policies as you are to uh, the US? I think that what needs to happen is we need to have an all-out conversation about um, Chinese-African relations. I think that that's what needs to happen. And I think that um, because, um, and that has to also include Taiwan, that also has to include Tibet, that also has to and talk about the Chinese contingents and the diaspora, and, and then looking at the Chinese government, because we know some of the things that China has done in Africa historically. The fact that um, they built the railroads in Tanzania during Nyerere's time, the fact that they armed Zimbabweans when the Russians would no longer do it um, to help them win the um, struggle that they won, um, the role that they've played historically. But we do need to talk about the current, we need them to be more vocal about what's going on. So I think, and we have to make a distinction between these relationships because for example, as we're dealing with agriculture security in Africa, at a moment where um, four children die every hour from starvation, we know that China built 20 agricultural demonstration centers to help us enhance our agricultural empowerment. So we have to um, look at the things they've done historically, the things they've done presently, but these isolated incidents that emulate European colonialist and imperialist tradition and have them um, address these things for us and when we're satisfied, we're satisfied, collectively speaking. But at the same time, our biggest concern is that the people who have been going after them don't have anything to say about the U.S. Africa Military Command, don't have anything to say about the United States Agency for International Development, don't have anything to say about the Corporate Council on Africa, don't have anything to say about the Council of Foreign Relations. So. Um, the things that are concerning to us and are hurtful because of the solidarity we've enjoyed, those things do need to be addressed in, as a um, demonstration that they're committed to preserving the solidarity, but under no circumstances 
will we allow that to be manipulated by European imperialism, who we've got unfinished business with? So we're not saying um, that we're going to overlook what these troubling dynamics, but we want to put them in the proper historical context as we move forward, because that's very important. Because the, um, we're not just talking about Chinese relations, we're talking about our relations with Vietnam, we're talking about our relations with North Korea, we're talking about our relations with the enemies of the West. And we can't afford to continue to look at intensifying our efforts against the West, but have the solidarity we depend on compromised by behavior that is in diametrical opposition to the solidarity that we hold so true to. And if we're going to be true to it, we expect our allies to be true to it as well. I hope that answered the question to your satisfaction. Now, you see, the threat to Africa um, is coming from all sides. You've got mm -hmm. Russia who had, uh, there was a document leaked that showed their mission for Africa. You have Saudi Arabia. You have uh, Europe, which are having a second scramble for Africa. And obviously, we've got America who want their piece as well. Mm -hmm. And last year, we saw the um, creation of the Africa Free Trade Agreement. Now, do you see that as being the way for Africa to move forward? Do you see that as the Pan-African future for Africa? I'll answer that the way Sekouture did, Ahmed Sekouture, leader of the Guinean revolution so long ago. He said, it is not the adaptation of political action to economic action. On the contrary, it's the use of economic activities for political ends. I find it ironic that the US Department of Commerce now all of a sudden has a Africa business exchange. I do not trust Akufa Ado because in Ghana, the president, because of his roots. He came out the womb anti-Nkrumah. His two uncles um, were um, founders of the first political party in opposition to Nkrumah and were very influential in the coup against Nkrumah. So the fact that all of us, but all of the governments after Nkrumah in Ghana, even though all of them have been in opposition to his policies, they exploit the strategy and tactic that was one of his most effective, luring the diaspora to come back. But they want them to come back, like out of the U.S., and make maids and gardeners out of the people who've always been in Ghana. So if our interaction in Ghana with our sisters and brothers, our long-lost sisters and brothers, if we're only going to talk in certain prepositions, clean my toilet, cook my food, water my plants, that's not good for the African liberation struggle. But I think that the issue is a couple of things. Number one, the human being must be declared the most important resource. And then when we do that, then we can talk about um, how we're going to divide the resources and the wealth amongst our people. You hear this generation, one of their battle cries besides Black Lives Matter is generational wealth. Well, Frantz Fanon said, wealth is not the fruit of labor, but it's the result of organized protected robbery. So it's only logical that those who have stole, those who have raped, those who have plundered will do anything politically to hold on to it. And those of us who have been stolen from, those of us who have been raped, those of us who have been trampled upon, quite naturally, we have to reclaim everything that inherently belongs to us. So we have a scramble too, and our scramble is the most noble scramble of them all. And in terms of them fighting with each other over us, what's new? Britain and Italy fought over Eritrea, did they not? So I'm just saying that these are the things that we've come to expect. But when you hear them talk about Agenda 2063, I'm more interested in those four 
hundred million Africans that live on a dollar ninety cents a day right now. I don't want to talk about 2063. Um, and I see how we've gone from military neocolonialism, which the 90s generation fought against through the police terrorism, to now we have civilian neocolonialism. So some have taken off their military fatigues and put on their best Hugo Boss suits and their best boobas and their best dashikis. But every day they wake up, they do what's in Washington's best interest. They do what's in France's best interest. They do what's in Italy's best interest, not what's in the best interest of their people. So as part of the process of this African history reclamation movement, reclaiming the resistance, reclaiming the narrative rooted in resistance, I feel we'll solve every problem that we have. Even if we are not privileged enough, like so many before us, to live to see victory. Emil Cabral didn't live to see Guinea-Bissau independent. Josiah Mangama Tongogara did not live to see Zimbabwe independent. Nat Turner didn't live to see the chains talking off our necks and ankles. Now, some people could argue that the problem in Africa is obviously um, imperialism is an ongoing force that has led to today. But a mm -hmm. lot of people do argue that the corruption in Africa by Africans is partly responsible for the position that the continent's in today. We just said neocolonialism. That's what it is. Yes. The, we haven't had a set since when de Klerk left office and, you know, after he shared with Mandela, it's strictly been neocolonialists, if not that before. We talk in Mobutu, we talk in Bukasa, we talk in Hufed Boini. We're talking about 98% of the governments today, they're neocolonialists without question. That's our number one fight, which means that our struggle is not only a struggle dealing with race, but a struggle dealing with class. But we don't deal with class struggle. And that's because many people only are attacking racism because they think that once racism is out of the way, they can benefit from capitalism as though the enemy is going to roll out the red carpet and let them share. And many of them would like to share in their people's suffering. This is why we say in the United States to many of our young people who think that being mascots for Fortune 500 companies represents self-determination, it does not. So yes, we're involved in an intense class struggle everywhere that we are. And human beings only have two types of class values. You either have ruling class values or working class values. When you have working class values, you don't want to exploit anyone and you don't want to see anyone else exploited. When you have ruling class values, you'll exploit anyone, even your own mother.